Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the MedTech industry where guests share stories, stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. We have two events coming up this year, our Midwest Showcase in Cleveland, Ohio, August 30th, and our Startup Symposium, October 25th and 26th in Houston, Texas at the Texas Medical Center for Innovation. More information on both are on our website. If you plan to attend either one, use the discount code PM20. That's PM20 at checkout. In this episode, our host Giovanni Loricella and our guest Eric Goslow at Transverse Medical discuss his best and worst piece of advice he received while raising money, being resilient, what problem they are solving, lessons learned so far, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Eric Goslow. I am so pumped for us being here today to be able to do this podcast because of how well we know each other. We have drank pints of Guinness together in Ireland over the years. We've had steak dinners in Boston. We've had cocktails in Tel Aviv. We're about to see each other very soon in Phoenix. Where else have you done? We've we've had wine sommelier nights together over in San Francisco. <laughs> we've traveled the world together. And so um, you've been on a huge, powerful journey building up Transverse Medical. And you've also listened to the podcast series. And you and I have spent a lot of time talking about what does it mean to be a CEO and entrepreneur in med tech and raise capital. And so anyway, very, very excited just to get your raw story of your experience of being a med tech entrepreneur and building up transverse medical as well as raising capital and also you're a great friend so it's going to be fun there's going to be a lot of fun and this is the med tech money podcast series and it's powered by project med tech and it's sponsored by lifeblood capital and the reason why we're here is because like many of the times that we've talked to entrepreneurs i've talked to entrepreneurs like you i've talked to investors from around the world and we all figured out thus far that there's no silver bullet or specific formula or magic on how all of this stuff happens. Raising capital, investing capital, it's tough stuff and it's it's not linear. And so my goal here is I want to rip open your stories and so that we can demystify this process and hopefully help some med tech innovators benefit from what you're going to tell us today. And the audience is listening in, which is entrepreneurs and investors. And what we want to do is use your stories as well as take your advice so that we can help our listeners learn from you more specifically for those first timers out there who don't have any clue of what really lies ahead of them of this next potential decade or half decade or 15 year journey that might be ahead of them that they have no clue about. And so I thought the best place to start is 
certainly learning from an experienced professional like you. So before we know who Eric Goslow is, before we know who Transverse Medical is, I'm going to start with some questions and then we're going to have some real good fun kicking up a bunch of dust. The first one is... Let me let me jump in there before you, you throw that do question. It, do it. You know, I, I appreciate the awesome introduction and, and, and of course the opportunity to be here. Um, but more importantly, how about those nuggets? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> because I know you're from Miami. So, uh, you know, I'm sorry to, sorry to see that loss there for the heat, but, uh, you're going to do, you're going to do this to me on a recorded podcast right now, but now, yeah, yeah I'm sorry. I, I, I had to put that out there, but you know, we got what, maybe three more games to go before we get a cheer. So no, no, it's, it's not even that it's now I'm going to be publicly admitting the fact and everyone who listens to this podcast is going to now know that I literally know nothing about sports. And so I actually <laughs> don't watch any sports, don't watch any spectator sports. I don't watch American football, global football, hockey, whatever. So I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. Sure. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it's the <laughs> NBA final, but, uh, but more importantly, you know, hey, you know, again, thanks for the opportunity. I think, you know, I appreciate the introduction. Uh, you know, what I like to do too, and something like this is really, you know, put out, you know, the thanks to most importantly, my family, but my wife too. I mean, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for her support and uh, and basically letting me pursue my dreams, you know, which has really been, you know, developing an awesome technology, which we'll dive into a little bit more during this podcast. Um, but thanks for this platform. This is great. Awesome. Thank you. And so let's jump into some questions and then we're going to figure out who you are and then listen to your story, ask a bunch of awesome questions and then figure out Transverse Medical too. So um, you've been an entrepreneur. You're the president and CEO of Transverse Medical. You've been doing this for a bunch of years. And I have to understand or at least learn from what your experience has been on the lifeblood of your startup. What is what is a lifeblood of medtech startups? And then what keeps companies going? Sure. Yeah. Great question. Um, you know, lifeblood is, to me is many things. You know, it's it's about innovation. It's about it's about teams. It's about leadership. Um, it's about solutions to problems. It's about time and, and, you know, and not just time, but time management. I mean, <laughs> this is not one of the easiest things that you'll do when you have a clear cut objective job, like going out and selling something, you know exactly what you need to do. But, you know, med tech startup is not that. And so time is key and critical. You know, and it's about, you know, managing all the resources that are out there, too. But but ultimately, and to be brutally honest, you know, without money, um, it's difficult to begin to even develop a med tech startup. Um, so, you know, you, you got to have a creative innovation, you got to have creative solutions. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of early stage uh, startups may never get off the ground if they don't have money. So so I think that's, you know, that's key to, to the lifeblood or that is the lifeblood. Uh, it's many things. It's not just one thing for sure. Um, and you got more. Go for it. Keep on. No, going. I was just going to, you know, answer your other question there. You know, what keeps us, you know, going and such is, uh, you know, what I think what keeps the the small startup alive is is the passion and it's the desire of, you know, never ending, you know, that never ending cycle to solve the problem. Right. Um, you know, we're going to we're going to fail a lot. And we did a lot, you know, we and we'll talk a little bit more about that in this podcast. But, you know, I think it's really about discovering better solutions. It's about better patient outcomes. It's about reducing healthcare costs. You know, it's ultimately at the end of the day, <laughs> a startup's about saving lives, you know, figuring it out you know, making patients have better outcomes or, you know, better outcomes and data and better patient outcomes so that they can have a quality of life. And persistence and resilience, I think, should be maybe two of your 
names after I should say right in between Eric and then Goslo. But you know, keeping startups alive, like you said, passion. You can call it passion. I know that you have passion for what you do. I've I've watched it for years. But um, and also the the resilience and persistence factor. I mean, we're going to get into that entrepreneurial story of what you've of been through and stuff. But there's not too many people I know like you who just keep moving forward through the molasses of building a class three medical device company. And, and that leads me to my next question. I've asked this question to a bunch of people and entrepreneurs specifically, but there are differences between class twos and class ones and de novos and class threes. And even in those categories of medical devices, the journeys are different and could be more complex depending on each subset. But you are doing a hard device. Once again, we're going to get into that story. The hardest part about building a class three cardiovascular medical device startup company, what's that to you? What's the hardest part about it? Well, we're actually a class two in the U.S. and class three, in the US. but you know we're not an implantable. And I think so. The hardest part about our our biggest challenge really uh, is is about convincing people that we have a device that they can utilize as because it's more of a it's a it's an accessory device. Uh, it's something that helps enhance that procedure. Or in our case, you know, we're in the in the business of preventing strokes, right? So there's certainly a clinical benefit, but you need data to prove that, right? And so that's that's what makes us a little bit different than maybe like a class one or you know a band-aid per se. It's easy to understand what the band-aid does, right? Point guard is like a band-aid, but we have to have clinical data to support that. So therefore it's a class two device. Um, and that's what makes it tough. You know, we have to go out there and show people that it does make a difference because they're going to add this to their procedures. They're going to add the extra cost to the procedure. Um, they want to make sure that it's safe, right? Uh, so these are some of the challenges for sure. And also you're not only just a add-on to a procedure. I mean, when you say preventing stroke and helping out with that increased stroke rate, I mean, you're dealing with TAVI procedures, right? You're dealing with implantable devices. And even though your device is a tack on for lack of a better phrase. I mean, you're, you're dealing with the hard stuff and you're dealing with a lot of clinical evidence that is the real hard stuff about building a medical device, which some devices don't have to worry about, which is the long journey that you've been on. Right. Yeah. And, you know, to add to that challenge, I mean, it's, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, we're doing the TAVR procedure, right? TAVR is already safe, right? Uh, that procedure used to take three hours to do when they first started that 12 years ago. Now it's like 30 minutes. So it's a quick and fast procedure. The outcomes are amazing, right? Patients are doing amazing, right? But you still have this issue of stroke. And so when you bring our technology into the space, it's really about convincing operators, industry, you know, strategics, et cetera, uh, that it makes a difference to have our technology in that procedure now that only takes 30 minutes uh, because of the fact that it can prevent a stroke or potentially prevent a stroke, right? So then we're going to go into the funding aspect of how hard those pieces of building your company have been for you. I mean, you've been raising capital for years and you've had good pieces of advice that I'm sure have been shared with you over conferences and cocktails and all that other stuff. And then there's other things that maybe have been given to you, but didn't really work out and you can call it bad advice. So, you know, from what you can share to this audience of likely nascent and early stage entrepreneurs listening in right now, what's the best and worst piece of advice that you've ever received on raising capital? So I'll start with the worst, you know, the worst advice that anybody ever gave me that it'd be easy, <laughs> 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 you know, 
fundraising and, and capital raising is not easy. And if anybody tells you that, hell, you certainly you can go out there and raise 10 million, uh, you know, they're usually full of poo-poo, right? So, um, you know, and, and so that kind of segues that it goes back to what you said at the beginning. I think if you if you don't have a tough skin backbone, if you don't have resilience, if you're not tenacious, persistent, uh, you're not going to get after it, you know. And, and I think it also leads to the fact that you need to have, you know, something that solves that problem, right? It needs to be cost efficient. I already mentioned that uh, before. Uh, and your technology certainly needs to be easy and such too. So, you know, the worst the worst advice is that it's easy. And so all those things start to come in into the buckets of what you need to check. And that's what makes it really hard. So, but, but the best advice that I've ever gotten is that uh, a quick kill is better than a slow death, you know, and, you know, there have been times when I've been in that fundraising and that capital raising process where something's dragging on. Someone on the other end just can't say no. And, you know, in, in the sales world or the sales side of me, until you hear that no, right, you got to keep pursuing that because there's a possibility that it could turn into a yes. Um, but then you really got to figure out when to, to cut that off um, and, you know, basically cut the line and let it go, right? Because you'd rather be have a quick kill rather than this slow drawn out death that wastes a lot of your time. And that goes back to us mentioning before time is time is key. Time is money. From your capital raising experience, why do you think investors drag their feet? Like I'm sure you've heard some reasoning to maybe even learned why someone gave you a slow no or never even gave you a no or closure and you probably found out later on. Like what's in it for not giving you a quick death? You know, it, it it could be two things, right? It could be that uh, I've failed to deliver the need or the story or give them the right information that they need, you know, and that's something that you learn early on in the process of being a CEO and, and going out and fundraising. Are you articulating that message, you know, thoroughly and properly? Are you answering the questions that they may have, right? Um, the other part, though, could be that they're just, uh, they need time to digest, right? Uh, or they're distracted. Maybe they have other priorities, you know. And so it goes back to sales 101. <laughs> and and I think that's the. And I'll say this probably more than once in this conversation. I think startup CEOs or fundraising CEOs, the best ones are the ones that have gone out and sold before in their lives, right? Carried that bag. Um, and so you know, I think narrowing down what their need is and getting there quicker may prevent that prolonged delay of getting to yes or getting to no. This one's a fun personal question, but I don't know if you read books or if you can read or anything like that, but imagine <laughs> you could read and you wanted to recommend a book for our audience. What book would it be? Well, right off the, right out of the gate, I'd say fundraising for dummies. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Does that even exist? Actually, I, I think if I Googled that, I bet it exists, right? Sure. So, uh, you know, I think we all would love to have that uh, fundraising for dummies or, you know, the or the Bible for going out and raising capital. Um, that certainly would be on the top of anybody's list. But, you know, if I look at it from a personal standpoint, uh, two things, I'll, uh, you know, I'll share with you two books that I've recently uh, read. And one of them was called Finish Strong by Nate Ebner. I don't know if do you know it. Nope. So uh, Nate Ebner was a uh, he was a rugby player, but he also was um, a New England Patriot. Uh, and he played for special teams on the New England Patriots. But the reason I like this book so much, it it kind of resonates with who I am. And I think that others should go out and read it as well, because 
It's about dedication. It's about setting goals. It's about failures and successes, trying to go out and achieve a goal. I mean, he initially wanted to go out and be a rugby star and realize that, hey, you know, you couldn't make a lot of money being a rugby player, but he did get a lot of satisfaction in playing rugby. And he went to the to the U.S. or to the Olympics and, and represented the U.S. team, but then came back and said, you know, I'm going to try out for the New England Patriots and, and literally walk on. Now, he played football in college. But, you know, nobody even knew who he was. Um, so it, it's a great book. Everybody should go out and read it. Um, and again, it's it, there's a life story in there with he and his father and how they evolved and and everything that he learned about becoming a leader and becoming a person and going out and achieving goals and not giving up. And it really it, it, there is a really cool story there. So I'd recommend that uh, on the business side. I've recently finished up Startup CEO by Matt Bluebird, which was, you know, a great book for learning how to scale your business. It's it's not about med tech, uh, and it's hard to find good books, you know, out there on med tech a lot. But this one certainly was not about med tech, but it was about the process of being a startup CEO, running through that process, a lot of the hurdles that you may encounter, uh, a lot of the challenges that are out there. Uh, everything from the soup to nuts uh, is in that book, and uh, I kind of consider that to be the fundraising for dummies for me, or that Bible for med tech, uh, you know, fundraising. And I'll just throw in another one because, you know, it's been a talk track for quite a bit uh, recently, uh, attending some CEO summits and various things too. Other other CEOs have actually encouraged reading it. So I picked it up. Uh, I did it on audiobook and then I read it myself, but it was um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. So, okay. you know, I think everybody, everybody should shelf. read that one. Yep, I agree. <laughs> yeah. on my shelf. Put it on audio. And, and then to follow that one, if anyone else is interested, Ben Horowitz wrote that one, but the the, the follow-on to that was actually the CFO of their original company that they did together. Um, and he wrote a book called The Secrets of Sand Hill Road. So that one's a little bit more focused on fundraising, and that comes after The Hard Thing About Hard Things, if anyone wants to read that. But um, just in conclusion, the second book that you mentioned, Startup CEO, that's the name of the title? Yeah, it's called Startup CEO. It's by Matt Bloomberg. Matt Bloomberg. Oh, cool. Okay. Perfect. Software guy. Yep. So that's, it's, it's a great book. Well, and you talk about startup CEO. So another question, what's the job of a CEO after having been one, right? So, I mean, when we look at your history and career of which we'll get the sequential story coming up here, but you're a first time CEO, even though you've been here for a while, you came from sales previous, and then now you're all of a sudden you've been a CEO, albeit for years. Um, but what's the biggest challenge of a CEO and what is the job of a CEO according to your now tenured experience? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, not to sound, you know, cliche, but, you know, the CEO sets the vision for the company, provides the leadership for others to follow. I mean, it's 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 really plain and simple. That That's really what the CEO is. But I think the biggest challenge is, is getting others to believe in the vision, right? And, and stay the course and, uh, you know, keep pushing ahead, right? I mean, you, you you're really a coach, you're a cheerleader, you're, <laughs> you're a fan, uh, you know, you're a shoulder for that, you know, others and teammates to, to lean on. Because as I mentioned before, you know, there will be failures in an early startup company. Uh, and when you're developing a device, uh, it's going to happen time and time again, and morale is going to get down. So someone's got to be there to boost people up, right? Uh, and that's the CEO, I think. And, you know, it's, I like to think of it in another way too, that, you know, the CEO is the glue that keeps everybody together, you know? So bonding, bonding those relationships, making sure everybody's happy. And speaking of glue, if you had a magic stick, what would you change about the capital raising process? 
<laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, if if I could change something, I wish it was as simple. I wish MedTech fundraising was as simple as uh, going on this to CNBC on the Shark Tank, right? And uh, giving a, sim- a simple pitch, right? Hey, here's my two minute pitch. And oh, by the way, Mark Cuban's going to write me a check for $10 million. You know, um, <laughs> if I could wave that magic stick, I wish that were the case, right? <laughs> so, so we know that's not really it. You know, so it's really about, you know, all the all the challenges that are out there and such. And and I don't know if there really is a magic stick, but it's really about putting it all together, knowing what you have to go out there and do and get it done. So now getting into the hard questions, what does the name of your company mean, Transverse Medical? Is there a story behind the name? So there's a there's a little bit of a story behind the name. I mean, when we first uh founded the company, you know, we didn't have a name, um, but, uh, you know, I just started looking at what the space was and what the technology was intended to do and where we were going to play in it. And, you know, my background prior to founding, being a co-founder for Transverse uh, was all in the interventional space, cardiovascular, peripheral vascular. And what we did time and time again, or what the operators do over and over again, is they transcend with a wire up through the anatomy, through the aortic um you know, vascular system uh, through the aortic arch and into the valves. So that's kind of what transverse, how the name came about. And the other part of transverse, when you look at it from a definition, is that, you know, it splits the upper from the lower, the two different planes, right? And when you look at our technology, which is the point guard, that's what point guards intended to do is to pr- protect or create that barrier um, between these, this upper and this lower area, the upper being the brain to protect it from stroke and basically keep the, the, the particles and the debris flowing south, right, into the, the peripheral where, they're, where it's safe for the patient. Um, on, the, on the point guard name, um, that's interesting. That, there was a little bit more talk track around that. So Bradford Lees, who's the conceptual inventor for, uh, for, trans, or for point guarding and co, uh, co-founder for Transverse, big basketball fan. His son was uh, at the time was uh, into basketball big time and was sinking three pointers from from the arch left and right. And so we were just kicking things around and the concept on a paper napkin, right? And then thinking about the name of the technology. And since the point guard itself looks like the arch of the basketball, and I know Giovanni, from the beginning of our conversation, you have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to basketball and sports. So this might be over your head, but uh, this is Mongolian to me right now. I have no idea what you're talking about. So there's a three point arch. <laughs> and so there's three points or three great vessels that we're trying to protect with the point guard. And because he was banging these out and hitting these three pointers, it just kind of all fell in place. And it just felt uh, fitting that we should call it the point guard. Not to mention that Brad Lees is about six feet or not six feet tall, about seven feet tall. And that's a, you know, a stretch. But he is this very tall individual, and obviously his sons uh, play basketball as well. So that's kind of how point guard evolved from the namesake uh, and transverse. Well, I'll tell you, after all the years that we've known each other, I I knew obviously that you're president and CEO, but I didn't know you're a co-founder. Or you were there from day one before the company had a name. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the co-founders, uh, I mean, Brad came to me with this idea and, we, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more in, the, in when we talk about transverse, but yeah, one of the co-founders, co-inventors on the device. But you've literally been there since, since day one. That's really cool. Okay. So, well, now we're going to learn more about it. So the, the, the friend that we've been talking to, the man behind the voice, um, Eric Goslow. So forget about transverse for a second, but leading up until you founded, co-founded transverse medical, 
who are you? So where do you live? Where are you from? How did you build your life through academia, through anything you want to share of who Eric is as a human being, career-wise, leading up to that magic day where you started Transverse Medical? And then when we get there, let's stop. And then I'm going to ask you again who Transverse Medical or what Transverse Medical is. So who are you? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think I'd like to start from kind of the present and then we'll go back into, you know, where it all kind of evolved and and my story, which I think is kind of interesting because there's a lot of history here. But uh, I've been in I've been in medical devices for 28 years um, and that was straight out of college. Um, I was what was considered to be a recent college grad uh, and I got hired right out of the gate, right out of college uh, with Johnson and Johnson. And they stuck me in an area called Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not the same Fargo, North Dakota that it is today that it was 28 years ago. So just keep that in perspective, right? So, you know, major metropolis of Fargo, North Dakota today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a tough assignment for a 22 year old to be staged, you know, established in the, or basically planted in the Fargo, North Dakota. Not a lot to do there at that time. <laughs> um, but you could get a cold beer, you could get a pizza. And, you know, when you're hustling and you're a first time sales guy, and especially at J&J, you know, you're, you're all about the job and going out there and I spent a lot of time, you know, out in hospitals and accounts and, and on the road. So it didn't really matter where I was at, but that's where I got my feet wet, uh, you know, as a profession, you know, into the profession of the 28 years. Um, but from there, I, you know, I've kind of, I've, I've gone through several different companies. I, you know, I went from J&J, I moved down into over from Fargo into Minneapolis, where the population was a little bit more fruitful and uh, <laughs> you could have a little bit of a, you know, of a lifestyle and a nightlife there. But uh, I worked for a company there called Everest Medical uh, and Everest Medical uh, specialized in bipolar electrosurgical generators and such. And so that was a great opportunity. And I came on as a regional sales manager uh, to manage the entire East Coast, uh, working with independent sales reps. And what I like it about that experience is that even though I was representing my product for Everest, as it working with the independents, they pulled out a genre of medical devices out of their bag at any point in going into these procedures. And these were the days where we could really just kind of walk into a hospital, walk into an OR and, and start selling stuff. You know, that doesn't happen anymore. Rules have changed. But I got to see good products and I got to see bad products and I got to see, you know, how physicians and operators, uh, you know, interchanged with those with those sales reps and how they liked those products. So it was a really awesome learning experience for myself. And that's kind of the key takeaway that I that I get from working working at Everest Medical at that time. From there, I kind of uh, moved into other areas like surgical. Um, I've had the opportunity to represent uh, eczema lasers, uh, all types of catheters, wires, balloon catheters in the in interventional side of things, um, pack scouts, gloves. That was at J&J. Um, got to do sterilization there as well. And so, you know, just capital equipment, kind of soft capital to disposables to reusable products has really been kind of what I've done in that 28 years. Um, and, and we'll come back to that. So, one of the things um, that I like to talk about too is my early exposure to the med tech was really at a young age um, as a young kid. And it's kind of been ingrained in me, in my DNA, uh, in my lifeblood, quote unquote, right? Um, and it kind of goes back to the deep roots uh, that I have in the med tech with my family, right? So my brother's been on the aesthetic side. Um, 
for quite some time, but it really stems for even further back with my dad. Um, and Jeeva, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to meet my dad. I, I don't know if you have, but uh, I, haven't, I haven't met your dad. And I was in the same town and we almost met your brother in Albuquerque. But, you know, I feel like I know your family. That's good. Yeah. So the history on, on that goes back to um, my dad was a Vietnam vet. Thanks for your service and all. Uh, but when he came back from Vietnam in 1969, he actually was uh, assigned in the Long Island and worked for American Pharmacy selling rubber gloves for urology uh, and proctology. So uh, he quickly got out of that and worked a deal with his man, his boss and moved to Colorado. And so that's how I ended up in Colorado. Um, but then he eventually started to work for Valley Lab. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Valley Lab, but Valley Lab's now owned by Medtronic. It's changed hands several times, but that's an electrosurgical generator. And that's really where, honestly, I, I got a lot of exposure um, to medical device. And, and that was really attributed to my dad's involvement with, with Valley Lab. He was one of the senior uh, managers at the time, eventually evolved, uh, worked his way up to being VP uh, for international but, uh, you know, I got to meet guys like Bob Anderson, Fred Ayers, Gary Curtis. These guys are all, if you, if you pulled open a biodesign, you know, with uh, uh, McCower and others that have all authored that book, you're going to find Bob Anderson's name in there. You're going to find Fred Ayers. You're going to find Gary Curtis. All these guys are in there, right? Because this goes all the way back to the Valley Lab days. And so I was exposed to a lot of amazing individuals at a very, very early age, at like the age of five. And uh, I like to tell one, one interesting story because one of the things that my dad liked to do is uh, bring these medical device, because we was in the international side, he liked to bring those international visitors into experience an American home, right? Uh, because he, he felt that was important as part of that relationship building and representing good products and such and, and building that business relationship. And one of these investors actually is, or one of these uh, uh, visitors is now an investor in Transverse. <laughs> so, so the good part of the story is that he was bringing in this Japanese visitor, uh, Yo Sakata, to our house. And my mom was getting the house all set up very nicely, right? Because she wanted to make a good impression. This is how the American, American house and American family uh, looks like. But unfortunately, the dog, our dog named Willie, had... Um, he ate a rag earlier in the day and decided that he needed to pass that rag, right? So we're, you can imagine this, we're trying to chase this dog uh, in the garage, in the house. And then lo and behold, my dad opens the door with Yosakata, who's the CEO for Amco, well-known distribution in Japan. And the chaos was going everywhere. And um, of course, uh, he realized quickly, which is what I, I liked about Yosakata and I like to this very day is that he, he quickly realized that it was not a good situation, but he made a, he linked to my dad and made a comment uh, so that my mom could hear it was, oh, I see that uh, dogs in America have two tails as well, <laughs> 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 which kind of broke the ice. And then that, you know, and so I think the point of the story there is that, you know, humor is always good. And I think that if we don't have humor as we're developing and working on technologies, and and that's one of the key things that I learned early on is that the right time in the right place, humor can break ice, right? And it can help, uh, you know, put, you know, at ease a, a bad situation. Yeah. Um, another story that I like to share there that I learned early on too was uh, about ownership. <laughs> and so uh, when Valley Labs first went uh, public, they offered up shares to, to, to the employees. And so I was able to actually acquire uh, a couple of shares of the company. And I asked my dad, what does that mean? He's like, well, you get equity in the company, right? So you, you have ownership. 
And so we were visiting Valley Lab one day and uh, I walked up to Bob Anderson, you know, how many five-year-olds get to walk up to the CEO? And I said, Bob, I, uh, I understand I now own part of the company, a fraction of the company. And he's like, uh, yeah, okay. And I said, well, if that's true, then I own the donuts in the break room. <laughs> what's, what's important to a five-year-old, right? So anyway, that, I just wanted to share some of those stories because those were some of the early things that I had as a, as a, you know, being exposed to the medical device. And I want to bring that into the conversation because we don't see a lot of that anymore. At least I haven't seen it. And, and I haven't seen it a lot in my 28 years is that really just kind of getting to know each other and having that family, that, that community and that, that, that culture of just working together and being happy and, 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 and living a good life. Right. I, I think that's important. And, you know, maybe that's, you know, opened up doors a little bit more since the pandemic and such, but uh, that was, uh, that's how I, that's how I came up, uh, you know, and exposed to Valley Lab and such. And so I want to jump into a couple questions here on that. So now we know your backstory of sales and also how you got into med tech and then ultimately founded uh, Transverse Medical. But I, I want to ask one question before we get into my first objective question here, um, and then also Transverse Medical. You're a sales guy who then became an entrepreneur starting a medical device that had a long way to go before it ever hit commercial, right? So naturally being a medical device sales guy, you're talking about selling product that had to go through the regulatory process that enabled you to have that product to go sell. So let's call you a late stage guy. And all of a sudden you go from being a late stage guy to co-founding a hard clinically intensive technology. How did you bridge that gap or how did you find the confidence to just do that? <laughs> well, sometimes you just got to dive in the pool when you need to learn how to swim. Right. So, um, no, I didn't have any real hard experience, you know, but I've always been, you know, I always paid attention. Right. I always asked key questions when I was always carrying the bag and, and going out there and hustling. And I think that every CEO and every entrepreneur in the med techs of uh, business should at some point go out and try to sell something. Um, and but one of the things that I did is I was always asking upper management or seniors executives, you know, questions, right? And and learning more and more about what they do. And so the transition when the opportunity came about and going back to Brad Lee's and such and, and how it evolved and being involved as one of the co-inventors and co-founders is I always joke that I pulled the short stick, right? <laughs> and so Brad got to keep his uh, his day job and uh, Eric didn't, right? So um, and so I kind of just dove into the deep end and hopefully uh, sink or swim, right? Um, but I, I did that, you know, with some, you know, good surrounding myself with a good set of mentors and advisors uh, and, and coaches, so to speak, right? Uh, it goes back to what I was saying, you know, being, being exposed at an early age to medical devices and, and through my dad and such and, you know, just tapping into his resources. Uh, and a lot of those guys that I mentioned before, like Gary Curtis or others, you know, have served to this day as mentors or people that I can bounce ideas off as I dove into starting up uh, Transverse. So uh, I think that's an important lesson. And for those that are listening in, especially the, the first time CEOs is you don't have to do it yourself, right? Ask as many questions as you can, you know, build a team or build a set of advisors that can help you address those questions. You're a storyteller. You like telling stories. We heard a couple of your stories. So I'm going to skip transverse for a second and come back to it. I want to ask one that's on point to the backbone of this podcast, which is MedTech Money. What's one of the, or if 
not the craziest story that you can share about raising capital for transverse medical that you still can't believe happened? I'd rather not say. <laughs> there, there's my disclosure. You know, I I don't know. It's 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 been a you know there's a there's always it's always a rough ride, right? And and I think that uh, you know you're you're chasing dollars. I've I've been on many planes. I don't have one particular story per se, but you know a lot of the capital that we raise in our Series A, uh, a total of seven point two million on the Series A, and then additional three million in bridge uh, during the COVID pandemic was you know just jumping on a plane and getting getting out there and having a dinner and, and closing a deal and being excited about it and, you know, breaking away from the traditional process, right, of pitching. Uh, maybe it goes back to what I was saying, the, the shark tank approach. I probably had the most success closing uh, opportunities, just being real, right, telling the story and, and, and understanding who my audience was at that time and and walking them through why we need you know your your investment and you know why it would make a difference and obviously always disclosing the risks <laughs> i'll put that disclosure out there because i'm sure my attorney might listen to this podcast um but you know i think you always have to you know you always have to balance that right um so like i said i, I don't have one particular oh my god this is an amazing story but there's it was all about the hustle you know, getting out there and hustling, hustling and jumping on a plane when you had to or jumping in a car and going out and getting that done and then just pitching hard and fast and and closing, closing fast. Right. Uh, I always joke with my wife. Uh, don't forget your ABCs. Always be closing. Always be closing. Always be closing. So tell us about Transverse Medical. We learned about who you are. Now we just want to know the little bit more than one liner about what Transverse Medical is. We talked about savvy. We talked about Obviously, it's a tack-on product, like you just mentioned, class two. Thanks for my correction. I'm firing my assistant. No, I'm joking. No, no um, what, what, what is what is Transverse Medical? What are you building? So, so Transverse Medical, we're developing uh, the Point Guard, and Point Guard is a cerebral embolic protection device, uh, which is a fancy term for a device that basically acts as a filter to protect a patient from particles and debris or unwanted particles and debris that could flow into the brain during a surgical procedure and cause a stroke. Um, the procedure that we're focused in or the area is structural heart. And the primary procedure that we look at right now that we've been following that's been in the spotlight is uh, TAVR, T-A-V-R, or transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Uh, in Europe, they refer to it as the TAVI. So whether it's TAVR or TAVI, I don't know. Point guard still works. <laughs> that's where it needs to be. So, so that's what we're we're in the space of. And the reason that we focused in on that, and just to kind of come back to the story a little bit too, is that when we initially were looking at uh, developing uh, Point Guard and, and came up with the concept, uh, TAVR really wasn't, hadn't even been approved in the US or anywhere in the world. Um, and uh, we were primarily looking at it as a potential to protect a patient's brain during a coronary intervention. And the story there is that uh, Brad Lee's uh, father-in-law um, he had suffered a stroke post um, a standard interventional coronary procedure. Uh, and it, it was several days after, but Brad was convinced that something happened during the procedure. The percentages of stroke occurring that we know to this day in interventional cardiology is pretty low. Let's say it's, it's less than one and a half percent, right? But it does happen. But just around that same time, uh, the TAVR procedure was coming out, Edwards Life Science, I mean, this is 12 years ago, right? Uh, their first study was coming out and their stroke rates were reported somewhere north of 6%, which was huge, right? 
And so taking a deeper dive in that and understanding how our concept was intended to protect the brain, we said, listen, that's that's an ideal procedure that we should be focusing in on. And at that same time, you saw in parallel Claret Medical, which has now been acquired by Boston Scientific, they had their Sentinel device, which we all, most of us should know about that Sentinel device that are following this space. Uh, you know, that's the only FDA approved device. And then there was another device uh, under the name of, at the time, SM, SMIT, Smith, I think, Medical. I think I might have gotten that right, but it's now known today as Keystone Heart, which has eventually been acquired by Venus MedTech. So, so that's kind of the area that we're focused in on. Awesome. And so let's let's stick there then, because I have some fun questions on the market dynamics. It's always good when there's acquisitions in a space, because that means there's appetite, especially for a medical device startup company, where if we're assuming that there's aiming for an exit, whether it's an IPO or, or an acquisition, if there's acquisitions already taking place, they're showing some sort of appetite for that. And so, you know, you, you mentioned the Sentinel device last year. TCT, the Sentinel clinical data came out. You and I were talking about your raise long before and during that, before even that data was released last September in Boston. Um, I just want your story on raising capital in a very layered technology and market, because it's not all about the technology, right? It's about time. It's about space. It's about players. It's about acquirers. There's a lot that goes into building a medical device and where it fits in the ecosystem. Um, I don't want to call it all politics, but there, there's a lot that, you know, just because you think you have a great advice or a device rather, and you got great clinical advisors saying that I would love to use this device, doesn't mean the market's huge. It doesn't mean that you're going to get acquired. It doesn't mean that there's not four other competitors that are vying for you or, or even ahead of you. So, you know, it's really interesting. In 2019, there was the co-op data that was released on MitraClip for transcatheter mitral valve repair also came out at TCT. And I remember, which basically in summary proved that the mitral clip was very safe and it was highly preferred by physicians to use. And because of that, it really hurt innovation in the mitral space because that really set a super, super high bar for innovation to overcome adoption. And so when I'm when I bring that up is because these big releases of clinical data often set the tone for the market. And you talked about CEPD devices like Venus acquired one and Boston acquired one. And then all of a sudden Sentinel data comes out, but you're a startup company. There's a couple others, I believe, as well, that you're building and developing and you're raising. How do you deal with those markets? dynamics? And then how do you deal with investors as you're pitching that? And how do you make them feel comfortable? And even yourself as an entrepreneur, how does that work? Tell us about those those challenges. Yeah, that's great. And, and thanks for that summary there. You know, I think it's best probably to start with uh, what kind of ha what's happened in this space, right? Um, you know, when we initially started, nobody had any clinical data, right? And so it was a chase, a race really to kind of get the capital in and, and move quick and fast, right? And as you know, in development, those that time and those those timelines can can vary dramatically for each company. Um, but to kind of fast forward a little bit, there uh, in this space, data is critically needed in order to support the use of an embolic protection device. Uh, Sentinel was kind of the first, uh, or Sentinel Claret Medical was the first to kind of go out and pursue that with Sentinel and get into their FDA clinical study. Uh, they were unfortunately. Uh, they failed their primary endpoint in that FDA study, but they they were approved by FDA. 
And that kind of set an interesting tone in our space. Uh, you know, devices certainly it showed that it was safe and it certainly showed that there was a, a value uh, to using the Sentinel device because every one of the filters that they pulled out of every patient uh, had particles and debris. And, you know, the general consensus is if you ask any operator is nobody wants that junk going to the brain, right? I mean, it's it's just, it's devastating to think that any of that actually comes off and goes to the brain and potentially could cause a stroke, right? So you have you have this visual effect, but then you have what is the unknown, which is the clinical data that supports that. And in a clinical community, everybody wants to see that clinical data to show that it actually has a patient benefit, right? Not necessarily the value of it, but the benefit of it. And so that's what this space has been plagued with. And so for Transverse and us, we've been out uh, dealing with that, right? And we've had to overcome those objections as to, well, why did the Sentinel fail? Or why did the, you know, the study fail, et cetera? Uh, how are you going to be any different? Um, and then we've always been challenged too uh, with looking lot, a lot like the Keystone device. We know for a fact we're much different and, and it's all in the design and such. And that's a whole nother, you know, episode that we can dive into on that. Um, so then we, you know, and Venus or Keystone had its own set of failures as well from a mechanical standpoint. So people would then associate, well, then your involved protection device isn't going to work either. And so that's where we had to go out and think hard and fast on our first gen device and now into our second gen device. Uh, how do we demonstrate that this device works well, is better than a competitive device in development, is going to be better clinically and show a clinical benefit in a clinical trial than the Sentinel device. And that's that's all part of the strategy. But like I said, this space has been played with that and then throw a pandemic in there, right? So, you know, we had to deal with those issues and then we have delays for, you know, two to three years. Uh, and so I think the big thing for us and, and for, for me as a, as a CEO and a message to other CEOs is, you know, I like to call it DFQ, don't effing quit. You need <laughs> to continue to keep pressing forward, right? And take every objection, take every challenge uh, that an investor or a strategic or an operator or physician may throw at you and make sure that you can overcome that with your technology. And that's what we've done is really simplified the point guard technology so that we can do that. So you talked about earlier the book, Hard Thing About Hard Things. You've heard it at a few conferences, which means a bunch of CEOs have read it, a bunch of entrepreneurs have read it. It's not easy being an entrepreneur. Um, and there are a lot of hard things about hard things that mostly don't get talked about. And so you just mentioned market dynamics about specifically transverse, but what you can share and what you want to share about your experience of co-founding Transverse Medical over these years, you've built up a company, you've had a team, you've had things happen with in your control, outside of your control, pullbacks, et cetera. You've had to reduce company size and now you're still leading this company. So going back to the hard thing about hard things, about anything that you can remember about, you know, whether it's from the book, at least I'm thinking about, you know, how do you fire your best friend who's a co-founder or whatever it may be. Like all these things that are just really soft and squishy, but really difficult to deal with, right? And part of building a business. So in your in your history of doing this, You've had to wind up a team, wind down a team, raise capital, build scientific advisory boards, and it's not easy. And now where are you today with Transverse Medical as a company? Where have you been? And then how do 
keep on pushing through that. Yeah, you know, and I think that's probably one of the hardest things is uh, is keeping that trust, right? Keeping that that faith and that belief that you're moving something forward. You know, time oh, the more time you have, you know, when you're stalled or in a in a position of pause because of things that you can't control, like a pandemic or the fact that you know clinical studies are ongoing or something, and people are waiting for that are out of your control, right? But um, you you need to continue to persevere and pursue. Uh, the ultimate goal, which is getting getting on track and making sure you can do that. And yeah, certainly I was I was challenged, like, you know, let's just use the pandemic as an example. You know, I, I had to let the entire team go. <laughs> um, we had no idea. I had no idea. I had a good I, a good hunch that the pandemic was going to last longer than six months. And I had a lot of people and even investors on our that are in transverse to this to this day say, oh, just keep charging forward, you know, it's, it's only going to last a couple of months. And I was surprised, you know, and we all were, I think at the end of the day that it lasted longer, but, you know, we had to make those hard decisions, right? So the hard thing about hard, hard things about hard things, whatever, you know, the Ben Horwitz book um, is making those hard decisions. And a lot of times it's what we don't know, right? So uh, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be of the pandemic, but I had to make a hard decision at the time in the best interest of what we had available to us from our capital where I thought things were going to go and where we were at with the company. Um, and so we were able to, to navigate that. And so that's just one example. How many people were you in total before the pandemic? Uh, we were just, just under, I think, a total of 12 folks that we had on our team. Um, and that was a, you know, a collection of either 1099 contractors, but also W-2. So we had probably, maybe at one point we had about 10 W-2s. So uh, that had to get scaled down substantially uh, during the pandemic, and and I was the only W two uh, held on for you know obviously for liability and various other reasons, but you know we were able to navigate the pandemic and navigate the last couple of years to 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 keep the doors open. You know again it goes back to DFQ. You know um, you can't give up, and so we found resources for capital uh, through grants. Right. Uh, right around the, the the pandemic time, we got issued a grant uh, from the state of Colorado for a quarter of a million. Uh, we were able to utilize that to keep the doors open and get the company and keep moving towards a milestone for our second generation device, which we haven't fully talked about yet. But we were able to get the second generation device through to, through to a point of design freeze, which we saw as a very key milestone during the pandemic. And that's really what we're basing our raise off of right now is being able to take that second generation device and move that forward back into a clinical study. So winding down and then maintaining for liability reasons, you mentioned, are you still this day, the only W-2 for transverse? At present day, still the only W-2. And, you know, part of our capital raise is that, you know, we'll be rebuilding that team substantially, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> oh yeah, there's that thing about talent acquisition and having a plan. <laughs> yeah, that's all part of the budget. <laughs> um, so, so plug in there for lifeblood capital. Here, here we go. Amen. Um, so I, I wanted to ask about that. Then going back to fundraising, which is ultimately the the focal point of the podcast. You know, forget about the fact that you've had a team, but there's a lot of solo entrepreneurs out there, even physicians who come up with patent ideas or whatever. I mean, and obviously you've had millions of dollars already invested into the concept and idea, and you're in a very rich ecosystem, like we've just discussed about technologies that have been acquired in CEPD, et cetera. So you have a story to tell, but there's a lot of solo entrepreneurs out there who are trying to raise capital. 
much earlier phases than you, right? And they get pushed back because they are the solo entrepreneur. And you, when you're an investor and you're giving money to somebody, you need to have that money go to work. Obviously, the intention is to get that money to hit milestones, but you likely have to go hire people to expand that capacity and capability to go get milestones. But that that stuck point when you are that solopreneur asking for money, and then you really just have to sell an amazing story to these investors um, for trust. And you don't have anybody else on the team. Like, how have you been able to navigate that? And some of the feedback during your past few years after you've wound down the team and now raising capital still for transverse, like how do you overcome that? Yeah, well, I mean, early on, right, when you're first trying to get your seed funding, it's about the vision and it's about the opportunity, right? And I think that, you know, your story is, it has to be pretty compelling as to where you're going and you're, usually you're trying to make comparisons to other competitors or other areas or that unmet clinical need. As we evolve, right, uh, and we went into our first inhuman, we did our first inhuman study, maybe we had some failures there, we understood maybe our, our device needed some modification, and then it evolved into the second generation device. So, it's really making sure as a CEO, you've got to take all the pieces of the puzzle and continue to model those into that vision or that picture as to what it may look like towards that end goal, right? Uh, and that's what investors are looking at. And that's what they want to see is, okay, what does it mean when you get to that point? Is there a potential for an exit? Or what does that look like for my return on my investment, right? And I so I think you're constantly doing that and as a solo guy, right, or the only person, you do have to reach out to others to help pull you in. So, you know, pulling in uh, advisors such as medical advisors to help tell that story. Uh, example in our space is easy, right? You know, when you get a physician that says, hey, listen, I've had patients stroke be, uh, during TAVR. Great. Could you help me tell that story to this investor as to why there's such a critical need for embolic protection? Absolutely. So you just got to know how to ask that question and when to pull them in. Um, and then other, you know, other examples is bringing in scientific guys as well. You know that I did that to validate the science behind our technology and why it does what it does in the anatomy based on preclinical testing that we did, like with our first gen, but also in our second gen and having those PhD smart guys, right, be able to articulate in a matter or in a way that is very compelling and convincing to an investor that's looking in and saying, okay, I get it. You've used other, these resources. You have scientific validation with respect to how the science is going to work. I get it. I'll write you a check so that you can get this device into humans and, and show that clinical benefit. I, I want to go into another major topic of being an entrepreneur, which is board dynamics. And this is more of like a generality, but oftentimes we hear the boards are either awesome and they give really great inertia and win behind the entrepreneur's back when everything is super healthy and strong. Other times, even independent of the CEO, they're just a catastrophe in terms of egos and all this other stuff. But a lot of what, especially if investors are going to be on the board, so there's financial uh, incentives and motivations, et cetera. How do board of directors keep CEOs motivated and supported especially during capital raises. Like talk about board dynamics and some of this stuff. I'll let you just run with it. You know, I think probably one of the most important things is that the board needs to, uh, you know, how they can keep me motivated is trust that I'm doing the right things, right? And I think when they, when you start to 
and you can feel that too, right? You can feel that there's a sense of, hey, are, are you doing the right thing? Because we haven't seen that, that close. You said we were going to go out and get some money in. Uh, you can sense that there's lacking some trust. But I think for a strong board or for a board to really help motivate that CEO is having a strong bond of trust and really supporting that CEO uh, in what the present task is. So if the present task is we need to close capital ASAP, you need a board to come in and roll up the sleeves and, and help out, right? And that's going to motivate that CEO to say, hey, I've got these guys behind me. They're going to jump on a call with me. They're going to jump on a plane or they're going to come to that meeting at Wilson Sonsini and, and we're going to just nail this and get it done. I think that helps a lot for any CEO. But the first step there is, and this goes back to like the earlier, earlier stage CEO is make sure you pick the right board and the right people that can have the capabilities to go out and help you do that. What about the the economics though? When when these CEOs, especially the early stage ones, and you're a co-founder, you've been there since day one, so you're an awesome example to ask this. Um, I run into entrepreneurs a lot where they start with the co-founder or founder uh, salary package, which is either non-existent or heavily heavily under market, <laughs> and and then you know you build a board and you're tasked with going out and raising first round, let's call it seed, whatever. And then you start getting into institutional money, whereas like series A, for example, and realistically, not much has changed for the founding entrepreneur and this money's, and now all of a sudden you have this very under market leader of the company who's tasked with continuously building the company. Where does the board come in to whether it's re-upping on equity to making sure that the entrepreneur is protected financially? Like, how important is it for the board to recognize that even if you founded a company, if it doesn't make sense financially for the founder anymore, whether it's through dilution or under market value of salary, et cetera, like when does the board or should the board step in to really make sure that they're taking care of the entrepreneur who's leading the company? Great question. You know, uh, early on, I didn't have what I call, you know, what we most people might know of as kind of a compensation philosophy. Uh, compensation and benefits, you know, and and I think that putting things like that in place right from the beginning sets sets the stage and the expectations and has full transparency between you and your board as to what you intend to be or expect to be paid, right? In other words, you know, let's just call it, for example, you know, okay, CEO is going to have a range from 150 to 250,000 a year based on certain milestones being achieved and it can scale up based on certain milestones, right? But if none of that's transparent and none of that's put out there, then you're always as a CEO, and I and I experienced this early on, you're wondering, well, you know, how come I'm not getting paid? Or I hear this guy's getting paid this, and gosh, they don't even have, you know, a product like ours, or they're so far behind in development. So I think understanding and managing that expectation, having a philosophy for compensation early on, and, and that's a living document. It can change and evolve over time. And that's just for, you know, the whole board, right? It's the it's the boards involved in that from an equity standpoint. It's your, your VPs, your managers, et cetera. How do you intend to pay people? How do you intend to compensate them? Full transparency on that. Um, you know, one of the things, and I'll throw in a plug for Thielander, is they put out some great, uh, you know, webinars and, and podcasts uh, talking about this very topic. And there's a lot to be talked about out there. There's a lot to be considered. You know, it's not as, you know, plain and simple as, hey, you get paid this dollars and go get it done. And, you know, there's everybody's in it at an early stage 
a big part of it is the equity side of things, right? Because we're in it to try to make more money, right? And at the same time, there's, there's the moral aspect of it too. And people think that, well, you should just do it because you're developing a product to save patients' lives. Yes, I am. But I have to save my family first too, because if I can't pay the bills, <laughs> that's a problem. So it's a big balance. And I think to answer part of your question too, is the board has to be in tune with that. And if they're not, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause some contention, right? Uh, amongst your, amongst the CEO, amongst the executives and everybody else in the company. Uh, so again, the bottom line is be fully transparent and have a plan. I want to ask, I'm going hardcore rogue friend on you right now. Just as like two guys drinking a beer off the MedTech Money podcast professionalism. Uh -huh. what, what do you do with a shitty board member? <laughs> get rid of them fast. <laughs> uh, no, seriously. Uh, how do you how do you get rid of a board member who collectively have the power to get rid of you? Exactly. Yeah. No, it, it's a tough. You know, and you know, you, you can't just get rid of them right away, right? You have to you have to follow the 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 path of the agreement or anything that's in place. But you know, I also believe too, if it's not working out, you can simply ask a, a board member, "Hey, listen, it's just not working out." You know. I can't get you to show up to meetings. You're contentious when we're in the meetings. You're catching up on materials in the meeting when you should be pre-reading that. It's just not working out. So I would say be transparent, be upfront, be bold, and have that conversation with that board member and try not to isolate them from the, you know, or put them on the spot in front of the other board members. Have that conversation, see how that goes, right? If it's going sideways, then I think then you have to take the course that you need to to get rid of that uh, that board member or have it, you know, see how long that term is and, and it's going to run out, you know. Um, but if it is going well, you can always say, hey, listen, you know, here's your equity or here's your pay or here's what we set you up on. Uh, I think it's best if we separate, you know, it, it, it kind of goes with uh, the movie Moneyball, right? I don't know if you remember that movie with Brad Pitt, but you know, when you're about to trade out, trade out a player or release them, you basically just say, hey, you've been traded. You're Here you go. Here's your paperwork. Talk to the HR person. I wish it was that simple, right? <laughs> With board members, it might be a little, little bit more difficult. I'm going to Gatling gun and just hit major topics real quick, just because I love your insight. But once again, going back to former competitors who have already been acquired in your particular space means that there's active acquirers in your space of cerebral embolic protection devices. Sure. As you've learned throughout your entrepreneurial venture of not only how to raise capital or build a team or start a company, find really great mentors and advisors, you've also had to learn about how to position your company with corporate strategics. How, how can you advise others who are listening in right now who may have very appropriate devices that fit within corporate strategics, Medtronic, Edwards, Boston, Abbott, whatever it may be, how do you even go about that? Do you reach out? Do you go on LinkedIn and find director of business development and say, hey, I want to tell you about my device? Or how do you actually, because I hear about this all the time with entrepreneurs. Oh, I just got back from the conference and I talked to a bunch of strategic, so I had a, a meeting yesterday with Abbott. Like, what does that mean? How do you, how do you position your company and device with corporate strategics? Well, you know, it's, my approach on that has changed substantially over the years. I've learned quite a bit. I've either failed on that aspect of it, or I've learned from you know, having discussions or talking to other advisors. But my one bit of advice would be is that you have to stay on 
if, if that's a potential pathway, right, meaning an exit being acquired, right, which we all believe that that's some pathway, an IPO is another pathway, right, or, you know, full-blown commercial, right? But if that's a clear pathway, then you have to stay on their radar, right? And I would rather have a strategic chasing me, <laughs> and I certainly would like that. And that means that we have to go out and hit milestones and make it an attractive that they're saying, I got to have that point guard device. But they won't know who that who that point guard or who the who transverse is or or even know about that point guard if you don't stay on their radar and provide them frequent updates, right? Um, and so that's I have a strategy where I'm constantly doing that. I'm keeping them informed, letting them know what what we're doing, what we're in the present raise, or what milestone we've achieved. If there's something that I think even the competitors have done, like the protected tab or study, hey. Did you see this, right? Don't assume that they haven't or that they have, right? Go ahead and just put it out there and keep it soft and light. And it's it's points of contact, right? It's touch points. Um, I'm a big believer of, the, you know, you have about seven touch points before someone actually remembers who the hell you are. Um, Giovanni, you know who I am now, right? I mean, this is touch finally. seven, finally, you know? After, after seven or eight countries, I finally can remember your middle name of Perseverance. The, the other bit of advice, though, to answer the other part of your question, how do you get to those folks? How do you get to the BD folks? You know, I think that in this day and age, I mean, you have to be bold. You know, I think um, success does favor the bold slightly, right? Uh, you know, but certainly it doesn't hurt to have an introduction. So if you can work your network, we have resources available to us, LinkedIn. You can see how someone might be linked maybe five or six pathways away from a BD guy at Medtronic, right? Like a, like a Chris Eso, but maybe you don't know them, but maybe you can get an introduction. Maybe you can meet them and ask to meet them at a summit, a CEO summit. So I think start soft and then build that relationship. And then you have the ability to continually update them either by email or at a conference. Hey, how are you doing? Just want to let you know we're still alive and kicking. Uh, and, and, you know, we've got five patients enrolled in our study, something like that, right? Again, I think that the right approach with strategics is you want to create that appetite that they want to come to you eventually. Very and, uh, similar, very similar to how you should create that appetite with venture capitalists wanting to invest in you rather than having your hands on. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Two last quickies. Why is being a CEO? So <laughs> what? Why is being a CEO so lonely? Well, you know, that, that's great. Actually, I never really thought of it that way. But yeah, it it is. a. Sometimes it can be very, very lonely, right? You feel like you might be an island out there uh, working the system, working the process, trying to fundraise, and you're doing it all alone. Um, and so that's, you know, it's because there's a lot of work that's involved. And, you know, just to tip on it a little bit more from previous uh, topics that we were talking today is that there's nobody else better to go out and fundraise for your company than you, the CEO. And that's a tough job. Don't think that a board member is going to close that deal for you. Don't think that if a consultant comes to you and says, hey, I can help raise uh, that 10 million, that they're going to do the whole thing and that you're going to sit back. Um, and so you have to go out there and hustle it. And you're going to hear no a thousand times. Uh, and finally get a yes once. And so that's, you know, that's the lonely part of it, right? And that's kind of the the downer that happens all too frequently when you're going out there and fundraising and, and trying to develop a company. But that's why I think that, again, it goes back to my point earlier in the conversation is that salespeople, <laughs> medical device salespeople, will just say that that's the category. 
make the best startup CEOs because they can deal with failure, or at least they've seen failure. They've seen no's. They hear no. Well, actually, we don't hear it. We just blind right past it, you know, blaze past it because we don't know what it's what no sounds like. And we just keep charging forward to get to that yes. So what's the biggest inefficiencies in raising capital for med tech startups then? Like what are some of the massive like that's so obvious just to connect those two points, but this whole universe doesn't connect them and this whole thing is just blindly inefficient. What are some of those inefficiencies? You know, I think the one of the inefficiencies is that there's no sure thing, right? There is absolutely no sure thing when you're out fundraising. Uh, and, you know, there's no quick path, right, uh, to, to closing a deal. Um, you you got to plan for the worst, right? Uh, and I think that that's, that's a hard thing, and especially in this day and age and what's transpired post-pandemic is, you know, one of the inefficiencies is that, you know, people said, oh, just just go out and raise what you need to get to that milestone. Bullshit. Now you need to raise around much larger than what you need to hit that milestone, because the mindset of the venture capitalists now is that they want to see a company hit that milestone. They want to see that milestone achieved and they want to understand the data behind it. Well, you if you don't have capital for at least a six month to a nine month runway post milestone hit, you're not gonna survive, right? And then you're vulnerable, right? If you don't have capital, you're just basically a sit and duck at that point for venture capital to come in. So I, I think that that is one of the post or one of the inefficiencies that's out there is just that only to raise money what you need and not planning for a contingency or a worst case scenario. So definitely go out there and get that done and, and make sure that that happens. I want to sign off with this last one. Um, I want you to talk to all those first-time entrepreneurs. Once again, you were a first-time entrepreneur at one point. Now you're a tenured first-time entrepreneur with a lot of gray hair. Well, actually, you don't have much hair left, but if, imagine oh, if you did. Thank you. For all those who you can't see him right now, he's really, really bald and gray. Well, how can you be both? You're bald on top and gray on the side, but I still love you. Anyway, um, the, the, the first-time advice for entrepreneurs, or I should say the the advice for first-time entrepreneurs, what would you tell them? You know, the proverbial you years ago when you first started Transverse Medical about raising capital, like how would you better prepare yourself now that you are so much wiser and smarter than when you first founded Transverse and speak to a room of first-time medtech entrepreneurs? What would you want to sign off with about raising capital? You know, I, I would tell them that you need, and you've heard me say this, uh, this line before is, you know, face in the place, right? You have to be present. If you want to win, if you want to be that CEO, that's going to close the X amount of millions of dollars and, and be able to drive your technology for it, you have to be in the game. You have to be out there playing. And all too often, you know, you see a, a CEO show up one time out of two or three years and, and they're wondering why they're struggling, right? Because they're not in it right? You've got to be out there. And I know that you and I have run into each other on numerous occasions on conferences. And, you know, it's because you have to have your face out there. People need to know whether it's good or bad, whether you're, you know, you're in a, you're in a valley or if you're on a peak, they want to know where you're at. They want to know that you're still kicking and you're still well, and you're still alive. So, you know, my advice to that early stage and uh, CEO is you got to be out there. And if you're not present, you're not going to play and you're not going to win. And so that would be my key key point there for them. Eric Goslow, co-founder, president, and CEO.
CEO of Transverse Medical. I'm. This was fun. This was a blast. <laughs> this was a long time coming. I love all of our interactions together, our travels together. I'm going to see you next week in Phoenix. By the time this releases, it'll probably be the week previous that we saw each other. Um, so what I want to say is, I'm really glad that you came on. I'm really glad that we were able to tell your entrepreneurial story of, of co-founding a company, coming from a sales background, being in med tech nearly all of your life, and then finding those headwinds of what does it really mean to not actually build a class three medical device, but a class two medical device based on my mistake, but also all those amazing stories that came with it. So um, I had a blast learning a lot more about the details. I can't wait to see you next week. And this is the MedTech Money podcast series where Eric Goslow just demystified raising and investing capital in MedTech. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks. Thanks for your time, uh, Giovanni. I'll leave you with one, you know, one last thought there, you know, to anybody listening, be resilient, be tenacious, have the right CEO mindset. And I like this quote too, the difference between a strong man and a weak one is that the former does not give up after a defeat. That's Woodrow Wilson. So get back up. If you get knocked down, get right back up and charge ahead. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.